Welcome to the Amazon Legends Podcast, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became powerful sellers, also experts specializing in helping sellers, and both former and current Amazon employees who will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here's your host, Nick Urison. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. My next guest today is someone you definitely want to hear from. Uh, this is a hell of a story. I can't wait to get started. And I've been waiting to have him on the show for a while now. And um, so he used to be often failed and a scrappy entrepreneur trying to find his way through life. And he was selling sealants. For windows so you may say okay well what's he doing here well you'll know in a second but what he knew very well was how to sell something so anything he could sell it's almost like the wolf of wall street sell me this pen so i guess he's the one who read and wrote the book so he then founded god of all amazon aggregators Thrasia. So. Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to be hearing from the founder of Thrasia. And outside of work, he's big into traveling, family, boxing, and reading nonfiction. So with that, everybody, meet my guest, John Hefter. Welcome to the show, John. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's a hell of an intro. I, I'll, I'll try to live up to it. I can at least live up to the sealant salesman part. So <laughs> I think we'll take it from there. Awesome. You're going to live up to a lot more. I mean, you know, when you and I connected and I'm like looking at your uh, profile and I'm thinking, I wonder if he's a good fit for this, for this podcast. And then you and I start talking and then you tell me your story. I'm thinking, is he a good fit? I wonder. Hell yes. So, uh, All right. So uh, you told me about your story. We're going to hear about how Thrasio started, how you came up with the idea and all that stuff. So that's coming. But what I really want the listeners to take away from this is something that you developed yourself during your Thrasio years, where you spent years through trial and error, figuring out the perfect formula for launching new products. So would you share with us what your formula is, Thrasio way, how you launch products and make them successful. Sure. I mean, I'd, say I'd love to be able to write in a napkin of formula for everyone that I could just hand out. Um, really, it's it, it became more of a philosophy. I was so lucky to see come across our desk um, approximately 200 businesses that we acquired during my, my tenure at, at Thrasio. And what I noticed was, uh, in essence, a, a general pattern. There are all these wonderful businesses of people who had great success but almost ubiquitously, a lot of people would do something what I call is just leaving cash on the ground, which means that they weren't optimizing from an ease and impact standpoint the products they should be launching. So as at, at Thrasio, when all of a sudden we have 200 brands and the universe is entirely open on what we could launch, literally the, the world was our oyster with our budget and everything. We really had to come up with a, a, a very cohesive philosophy that we believe would show success. Um, and that 
philosophy after years of thinking came down to some very simple principles. Um, and one of those principles was just take the ease and impact hierarchy and hold that to the highest regard. So what I mean by that is on everybody, there's, there's things you can do to your listing. There are um, variants you can launch. There are things that your factory supply, there are two-step variations that might be available to you. And that sort of stuff to me is what I call easy money. And so um, you should do everything that's easily providing the most impact first. Now, then you, what you do is you use that money that you have now gained from the ease and impact, and you invest it in projects that might carry a little bit more risk with them, but also come with a little bit of upside. And then you leave your last five to 10% for things that might be what I call a moonshot, right? I want to enter a competitive space and I'm going to spend the money and we'll see how it goes. Um, and, and that simple philosophy was allowed us to build a launch program that went from zero in revenue uh, to to literally within 18 months have a run rate of 50 million, right? Wow. We we found all these brands that just had these little things that were that were missing, um, and sometimes too it comes down to something as simple as just solving a problem. So one of my most successful launches at Thrasy was actually one of our first ones. Uh, we had this product called Angry Orange that that Thrasy was sort of famous for. Um, it's been a part of our our story. It was a pet cleaner product, but it, it came in a concentrate, which means that someone had to open the bottle up, pour it, mix it themselves, put it in a spray bottle and do all those steps before it became effective. Um, so I'm, I can be a lazy person. So my first instinct said, Hey, let's get a more attractive bottle, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and then from that point, we'll, we'll launch something that's a pre-mixed spray. Uh, and that product went from zero to, I don't know, eight or 10 million in sales uh, in about a year because people were getting both that they want, which was the ease and the, and the impact of the product. And, and so for me, it's always looking at that. So even before you look at launches, are there things in your listing that you can improve that, that are quick? Maybe they're creative updates. Maybe it's new packaging update. Maybe it's something along those lines that will drive your business forward and allow you the wiggle room to then go into more sort of, how do I say, complex launches. Okay. So I want to, I want to dissect. Go for the it. Thing that you said. So what I picked up is there are two fundamental principles that you apply. One is pick up the, that you call pick up the cash lying on the floor. In other words, lowest hanging fruit. Yes. The second is focus on, the ease and impact of the product. Uh, create a, a plan about what is it that you're going to offer that will provide ease and impact. So those are the two cornerstones of your launch. Is that right? Yeah, the, the second part's a, a little bit off. What I mean by that is, is ease and impact on your business. So, oh, business. so, so the, the ease might be is that my supplier already makes this product I don't have to create a mold. I don't have to do any complicated work. I don't have to source it from somewhere else. It's available for me, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the impact might be something along the lines of like, hey, I have a listing that I can actually leverage to, or, or a customer list that I can leverage that'll make this product likely very successful without a lot of work, right? Okay. So that's what I mean by ease and impact. I see. Okay. So this assumes, I mean, both of those principles 
to apply, uh, it, it assumes that there is an existing operation, there's an existing number of listings, right? So that's what you are doing. So because that's where you were, right? As an aggregator, you were acquiring these brands. They were coming in with sales and listings and everything else. And you're looking at, okay, how do we get more out of it? Yes. If I'm going to start something new, which we did launch new things as well, there's there's different things that go into play here. So one of the things that I will tell everyone on this who's who's new to Amazon, if you're listening to a product that's on a podcast that everyone's saying it's the hottest new thing, it's too late. It's like getting investment advice at the gym. Okay. So so don't do that. Um, and if I'm to enter a market that has a lot of competition uh, and there's there's difficulty for penetration, first of all, maybe that's that's the place I don't want to go. Maybe I want to find really weird niche where there's a competitive advantage that you can see instantly, i.e. there's a lot of volume in this uh, and uh, in this category and the offerings aren't particularly that strong and maybe you have access to, to, to get something. If I'm going to take an item, I, I always use this example like a lemon squeezer. I don't know how many people are selling lemon squeezers on Amazon. I know it's a lot, right? It just seemed to be one of those easy products from China you can get. And everyone either sells the sort of stainless steel one or they sell the yellow coated one and maybe a green coated one. Um, but they're all the same. So you have ubiquity across the product set. So really hard to enter and penetrate a market like that and have any success. But if I was to spend the time creating a mold or working with the manufacturer to get a stronger hinge on the lemon squeezer, maybe get it some big, strong, reinforced rubber handles uh, that it could literally like, you know, I don't know, crush a watermelon or something along those lines. And then I call it like the gorilla squeezer and give it a cool color with the handles. Then maybe I can enter the lemon squeezer space tomorrow and actually find success. So when you're starting out, you need to make sure that you have differentiation it can be price, it can be design, it can be benefits to the customer, but some combination of those things have to exist in order for you to have success in Amazon in the modern day. So let's take that scenario. So let's take that scenario where you created this much more superior product and you are entering this space that has quite a few sellers and those sellers have fairly significant number of reviews. However, you know that you are offering a lot more in value and it's a better product. So would you still go ahead and, and, and do it because your product is better despite the busyness and the reviews and everything else? Or would you look for different space? Of course, the answer is going to be your, your audience's favorite, which is maybe, and I don't know, right? Like I'd have to look at what other opportunities exist in front of me. But again, I would, I would use that same opening principle that I, that, I, that I told you is like ease and impact, right? And if I can find something that's easy, so the category is wide open, there's a bunch of search interest for a product and no one's selling it and I have access to it, then that would be the one that I launch. Right now, those opportunities are maybe few and far between, but you really have to spend time assessing all of your opportunities and looking at it from a perspective of like what's likely going to give me a, a win and what does winning actually mean and how much money do I need to invest in order to win and how long will it take for me to get back to even once I do invest money. And you create yourself a little formula and it's basically like a um, almost like a bracket 
right? Of, of like a sports betting bracket where you're like, this is my number one seed and this is my last seed. And you filter things down to you figure out which one you think is going to be a winner for you. Um, and, and, and I, you know, it seems like such a simple principle and maybe your audience is feeling like they're getting gypped right now, but I'm telling you, I've been around so many brands and so many people misstep this principle, right? Uh, and what they end up doing is, is chasing the silver ball, the newest, hottest thing, or they have a passion for something that they decide they're going to design a new espresso maker themselves. And they spend two years and waste $400,000 on something that no one wants. Now, you'd be surprised that, you know, how easy it is to get off track with this sort of thing. So for me, it becomes paramount to have this sort of principle anchor whatever your philosophy is going to be for launch. I see. Okay. So as far as the, so we're talking two different types of launches where one has brand new starting from scratch. The other has a number of listings and an operation where you're looking to bring further growth. So in the brand new launches, your focus is focus on the differentiation of your product, offer more value, and then try to avoid heavy competition, too many competing listings, and possibly, you know, you don't want saturated space, and uh, ideally, not too many reviews, you're not going up against too many reviews. Would that be a good summary of how to approach brand new launches? Yes. All right, cool. So now switching back to the second scenario where you have a bunch of up, um, things going on already, you have an operation and you say, pick up the money that's lying on the floor. So those are things, give us some examples because I love that. That's the you know lowest hanging fruit is always the, the, the first one to go. So give us some examples. So I'll give you an example. We, we acquired a, a business in betting, right? That was a very successful business. Um, doing north of 10 million a year. Uh, and we looked at their back end and discovered that they had a two-step style variation available. So here is an ASIN that's driving a ton of traffic, doing millions of years in sales. And we had the opportunity to add something to the listing, either as an upsell or as a value play, right? So we'd have one product that is the, the core product that's selling a lot. We could add a premium version or a discounted version and put it on the same listing. So to me, that becomes from the ease and impact hierarchy, something that goes right to the top of the list, right? Um, or you're in a category where everybody is one color, or perhaps there are two colors that everyone sells, but you only have one of them. And you think, you know, by just adding a, a variant of color, your business can go up by 15%. You should do that. Now, don't go and, and do we had someone do this, 30 different colors of a wine opener, that's going to cause confusion by the customer and you're going to lose sales. But it's those sort of simple things. Or, you know, I've seen stuff in the music space where literally everyone's offering looked exactly the same. And with one simple design modification, it would just look so much cooler, right? So by, by offering this cooler design, um, I could maybe A, raise my price, but certainly B, convert more and get more sessions based on the image itself. So to me, that's the sort of stuff that that I look at and I'm like, huh, this is this is an interesting play. Perhaps another one is is just, you know, I've had some packaging plays that have been massively successful. 
Uh, when I mean massive, I mean millions and millions in added sales by just looking at a space and saying like, every offer here looks exactly the same. I'm going to call my supplier and see what my choices are for wacky stuff, right? That maybe I can add to this hero image and all of a sudden I'll just get eyeballs on it and that make a thumb stopping experience and people will buy from that. So, you know, for me, like there's, there's just always opportunities that are sitting there. And before you go and chase your really ambitious thing next, like, let's say I was, um, I, I was selling leashes for dogs before I go and try to sell a tractor on Amazon. And that's an extreme example, something I know nothing about, right? Maybe I can do the, the dog trainer kit, the poop kits, dog cleaning kits, shampoos, something that works with your brand and something you have access to. And that's the move I go in. Um, I don't just go searching for the, the, the abstract gold. I actually have a, a plan. So for me, it's that. And we used to literally write things down, write down all of our opportunities. And then we'd have these you know, long meetings arguing about which are the ones we should pursue and which ones we shouldn't pursue. And, and that time was immensely valuable and made our success rate over time super high. Well, you know, Amazon has this new feature. When I say new, it's about a couple of months old. Uh, as we record this in January 2023, um, it's about a couple of months old. It's the virtual bundling, right? So yep. that must be the perfect tool to test out different things. Uh, what's your take on it? Yeah, absolutely. We, I mean, we used to, we used to do that. Um, ourselves before it even existed, right? I mean, you can do that by um, putting an insert in one of your packaging that's all completely compliant, just says, check out our other product on Amazon, right? Uh, you can do virtual bundings, you could bundling, you could set them up anyway in certain ways, right? Um, all, all white hat to coerce people into considering your other offering. So if I have a product that is doing 5 million a year, of course I want to leverage that audience. How many sessions is that? Sure. that that's going to see my potential other product that makes sense with that product, right? And so we use, that's a rinse and repeat formula that we used. You use the power, the halo of your current strong product to influences, influence people's purchasing decisions on other offerings. And so just don't forget about the halo. Like what is the halo? Discover that leverage that first, and then move on to something maybe a little bit more ambitious. So as far as these additional ones, they, they are all, you're suggesting they should be all variations under the same parent because you're already receiving traffic on that listing, product listing page, and just uh, add another variation without really that, uh, going too far. Variations for, variations first, but no. I mean, you can have other listings there that can't be variations, of course, right? But, you know, Below your EBC, it shows the other products from your brand. In your store, it's there. In your secondary images, you can mention your new product that you have going out. If that's still compliant today, I believe it is. But you know, obviously, do your own diligence. So what I know is that I'm like, hey, um, you know, let's use that pet spray. I have this new pet spray. We have this new UV flashlight to ID stuff. You know, bundle it and buy it and save or look at it. And, and, and make sure you use this coupon code, whatever it is, right? You're, you're using the power of one of your ASINs 
to help launch your new one. So instead of starting from zero, like everyone else, you, you're, you're starting from really an advantageous position. So, you know, I, I'm not in it enough to know all of the details of what's compliant and what's not at this point. I just know that we've done stuff like that, fully compliant, and it, and it, it works, man. Well, I mean, you, you look, you, at the end of the day, you're not taking traffic away from Amazon. You're bringing more, uh, except yep. you're bringing it to your own products, which at the end of the day, it's on Amazon. There's nothing wrong with it. The product is selling. So, um, okay. So ease and impact is the second philosophy that you apply. So that's where you are looking for the least amount of resources to be allocated to add a whole new revenue layer to your top line so yep. that that way you know you don't have to go from scratch build everything from scratch so that's another way so i mean really these two philosophies would keep you busy all day long for god knows how long right yes yeah so okay so let's talk a little bit about success um, what success looks like for an amazon seller and give us some of your criteria that you feel if a seller has these KPIs or has this kind of performance, that's a good seller. So that's, in other words, what what do you want to be when you grow up as a seller? So what does that look like? I'm going to respond by asking you a quick question in regards to that. There, there are different ways to look at this, right? One is... What looks like success if I'm trying to maybe one day exit my Amazon business, right? That's number one criteria, like one thing you could ask. The other question would be like, what's actually just success for an Amazon seller, right? And they're, they're two different questions and I'm, I'm happy to answer both or, or one of them, yeah, whichever you choose. Let's do it. But let me first say this. In business, I learned a, a long time ago, everything is up for sale for the right price. Yes. And when you're starting a business, you are always starting with the exit in mind. <laughs> so, uh, so that should be really anybody's. But then there are also lifestyle uh, businesses people do. So let's answer both. But for the listeners' benefit, anybody looking to build a business or building a business, always plan for exit because you can't be doing, especially in technology space, things change very quickly. Just strike while the iron is hot. <laughs> And, yep. and exit. So, uh, so let's see. Uh, let's start with the first one uh, with exit in mind. Yeah. So, so for me, look, the it was such a a a, a seller's market, right? As of uh, you know, as of a year ago, it's entirely changed. Mm -hmm. um, so, people were buying up everything as long as the price was okay. By about this time last year, that the environment's changed. It's not going to be that way again for a long time. So you have to make the one thing that's always simple. Why do I know how to sell things? Right. I'll tell you why it's super simple. My instincts have always been able to have me be able to like pull myself out of my body, go around and look at the other side of the table and know exactly what the other person's looking for. Right. That's the reason why I was able to sell stuff. I didn't have any magic tricks or anything along those lines. And that's what you need to understand. If, if, if you're looking to sell your Amazon business, why does someone want you? Doesn't matter how hard you work, doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter anything, right? Why would you, why does someone want you? And this is why people want you. 
they see tremendous upside in something that's been under-optimized. So you have a really awesome brand name and people really register with it. And they, be and they believe that your, your marketing and thing hasn't been as effective as it could be. And they have a path into retail and they have all these reasons why they think you're awesome. All of a sudden your perspective multiple goes up, right? Um, you have a simple business that's easy to understand that has uh, predictable revenue and profit numbers, right? Those, those are things that people like. So a cool brand that they, they think they can leverage, right? A consistent business that makes a lot of money. Um, not a lot of excess waste. No one, no one wants to see that you have, you know, 19 different revenue streams that make up 4% of your business, right? That's just fluff that no one wants, right? They, everyone who's looking to buy a business like that, they want simplicity. They want repetition. They want stability of supply chain, stability of performance and, and brand. If you have all of those things, along with maybe a nice roadmap to product development, you're going to have a brand that's going to get whatever the market is top dollar. Okay. If you have a mixture of products that have no brand cohesion, that really don't make any sense together, that have up and down revenue performance and, and adjusted profit performance, inconsistent supply chain, problem with trademarks, problem with lawsuits, like all those, like all those things all of a sudden become ticks in the wrong direction. So Let's take a brand, we'll use Angry Orange again, really beloved pet deodorizer that had its own sort of social movement beyond Amazon, right? You know, if you repurchase it now, 50,000 five-star reviews, right? Like I know what that thing is going to be and I know where it can go. It can go to Target one day. It can do all these other things. Like that's going to be something that has value to me, right? If I see a brand that has like, I don't know, those weird pads you put on your feet that supposedly take away toxins. And then there's fidget spinners and there's things for your face and there's back massagers. And there's just a litany of stuff that are from a, a bunch of supplier catalogs. You have 36 suppliers and you've had a bunch of launches that have started and failed. And you had a product that was huge, but then it tailed off. You might think that your business, because it's making a million dollars a year is worth seven. But most people will look at that and they'll be like, I don't want this thing. It has no real use to me. So as you build a business, um, it's you don't, you don't have to obsess about it, but you should be, if you're thinking about an exit, like how, do, how is this going to look for someone who might want to buy this? Would I want to buy my own business? It's a great question to ask, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's success on one side. On the other side, from an operational standpoint, really goes to what your goals are. You know, I mean, it's wonderful being an Amazon entrepreneur. And, you know, and I'm now involved outside of Thrasio of seven projects that I, I care very deeply about at different degrees, you know, but I'm not in an office anymore. I work from home mostly now. I work on the road and I, I, I travel to see people. You know, you have to understand if you're driving in this business, it can be an isolating place, right? You are going to be working from home. You're not going to have too many people to collaborate with except the people that you might hire. So I recommend if to, to think, is that a lifestyle that you want? You know, do you need social interaction in your life? And if you do, and you still want to do Amazon, realize there are a bunch of places and a bunch of communities that you can go and meet people who are in the same space and learn. And that's really another thing I would recommend, you know, look into groups like MDS, look at Titan's group, look at Brandon Young's group, look at, you know, the work you're doing and, and find a community that will help you learn because you're not going to learn fast by yourself. 
you know, when we started Thrasio, I had this much Amazon experience. Okay. But I tell you what, after, after talking to, you know, 50 brand owners and knowing their business intimately, I sure as heck knew a lot about Amazon in a very short period of time. So, you know, make sure you focus on your learning curve, make sure you have resources, make sure you just know what you're getting into. You're going to be stressed, right? Yeah. Something's going to, weird's going to happen to your listing. Amazon's going to make some changes you don't like. You're going to order some inventory and have your sales die by 30%. Like you just have to realize that, that the continuing up and down ride with failure pressures in between are part of this ride. So, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not for people who, um, you know, require a lot of social interaction. It, it's, it's for people who are willing to sort of brave their own way and take a lot of licks before they figure out what works. Yeah. I mean, you, 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 you said several things that I, I, that I love. I think it's worth repeating. You want to sell your business. So talking about the exit approach, you want to sell your business, asking yourself, would I want to buy this business is such a significant question because I hear from a lot of uh, entrepreneurs who are under pressure. Things are not working. They are short on cash. And you know how it is. Cash is always short, no matter how good the business is. So they say, oh, you know, I just want to sell this business. Okay, well, why would people buy it? You know, you, you want to unload your problems. That's not the way to sell bus a business. And in addition, even if somebody wants to buy, what kind of evaluation do you think you're going to get on something that's struggling like this, right? Yeah. So it's such a such a significant question. Would you want to buy your own business? Uh, the second one is... And, and actually, I have another thing to add to that. Like, don't fall in love with your own hard work. I've had so many sellers come to me and say like, well, you know, my customers love my umbrellas. They're the best. They love them. No, they don't. No one cares about an umbrella, right? Like you, they, 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 what they do is they overvalue, often like we do with things we love, like our children or our family. They overvalue what other people see of them. So just be very careful to have a realistic look because otherwise you'll get disillusioned because you'll always find someone who'll be willing to take your business to market and promise you they'll get this very high multiple. But you'll always find that person somewhere and then they'll come back with bad news and eventually wear, wind you down to a place where like, uh, you know, you end up getting market price. So just be aware that you're more passionate about your business than anyone who's about to buy it. That's it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, as far as the lifestyle approach. So in mm -hmm. other words, that's more along the lines of really being prepared for what you are taking on by becoming an Amazon seller. Really, you, you, you are describing that where, you know, if you are someone, if you're an extrovert, you need social interaction to recharge your batteries. Well, this is really not something that will give you that opportunity on a regular basis because Amazon is mostly about surprises, right? Because they keep changing the rules. <laughs> Yes. So if you don't like change, forget it. That, that's not for you. Uh, the second thing is it's a lot of reading, a lot of detail work, a lot of experimenting because they really don't tell you what is causing what. I mean, to this day, everybody knows Amazon A9 algorithm, but nobody really knows how that works. 
So uh, even Amazon people, you know, I had a couple of Amazon, uh, former Amazonians on the show, and they said that the search team is like behind bars. Nobody gets to talk to them and they, they are sworn to secrecy. So you often don't know what's going to happen. So unless you are an analytical person and, and you can really work on detail, this really is not for you. Having said that, um, I always tell sellers, always find someone who can be your mentor because you don't want to be figuring things out uh, through trial and error because the costs are too high. Um, what, uh, how would you recommend for sellers to find a mentor for themselves? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, there's there's lots of resources there. Um, I'm not here to pitch anyone or, or to you know exclaim anyone's quality, but there's a lot of people out there who have mentoring programs um, that can really, really help your business. Um, and there, there are programs out there. You can Google them yourself. I'm not going to pitch anyone. I'm not here to, I'm not paid by anybody. But there are people who really give you step-by-step -step, um, ways to optimize your business and then also keep you up to date with everything that's sort of happening. And the other way is just to get out there. I mean, I, I know... I know over a thousand Amazon sellers who've done well, you know, like if I wanted to go and, and reach out to them for information, figure out what's going on, I make four phone calls. I know exactly what's going on. Now mm -hmm. that's an extreme example, right? But any person can, can do it on a, on, a, on a micro level, which is finding an online resource for some basic mentorship, traveling or going to events, going to local Amazon meetups and meeting people and doing something which might sound odd, share, like share with the other people what's working for my business, what my pain points are. The more you open up to people, the more they're likely to help you. Uh, and the more you ask for help, the more help you get. You know, so for me, uh, that was something that that was always important to 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 our business. Asking are the people we're buying businesses from, going to conferences and and figuring out stuff and, and really wrapping ourselves in a community when the other choice is being somewhat isolated. And let's assume that you met two, three people that, that you like, that you have personal chemistry with, uh, but at the end of the day, you're looking for an Amazon mentor. What are some questions that you should be asking yourself in order to pick the right one to align yourself with? How do you know the right one? I mean, I'd, I'd ask them, you know, if they're honest about their failures as much as their success, that's a good start. If if they open with you and say, ah, oh, I did this and it was the worst idea. I hired, you know, um, these VAs over here and it was a total disaster. But then I figured it out because I got this other person there and they really work now or, you know, this is this didn't work. And then I found this little, you know, hack that worked. And now I've shared it with a bunch of my buddies. We're all doing well. Like those are the types of people that that you want to, you know, it's it's really you look at relationships as um you know, givers or or takers, or some people are kind of in the middle, right? That old Adam Grant book, which I, I love and actually done a talk on before. Like I look, I look for other givers. And I, I go in with open arms and saying like, hey, I'm going to share all the valuable information I have with you. And I could really use your help in this area, right? Mm -hmm. Another one too is like, find a matchup to your weakness. If you're, I was 
consulting with a friend of mine just as a friend for free the other day. Um, he's a comes from an engineering background. He's really good at the back end of Amazon. He's really good at you know sourcing products. He's not good at creative stuff, right? So he calls me up. I spend a half an hour with him and be like, mm, "That's all wrong. Fix this. Do that." So I was able to take my my skills and compliment him. And I knew if I was launching something new on Amazon, I don't do that back end crap. All right. Yeah. So for me, it doesn't interest me at all. I can I can barely get started. That then we could sort of switch off our skill set. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I mean, you covered so many high level uh, approaches in terms of positioning yourself, getting your business organized in a way based on what your goals are and uh, your launch. So so now let, let's get to the elephant in the room. So tell me about this Thrasio business. So sure. tell me how how going from selling sealants for windows and, you know, Amazon is really not something you've done before. Tell us the story. How did that come about? Yeah, so it's it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, I actually had um, sold that sealant business, um, not for a ton of money, but I was able to get an exit from it. And it was actually, that was years before Thrasio, but it, it was a ton of fun. It was a high school buddy of mine, and we built this wackadoodle on our own sales demo. And, and we took it to a major Amazon Windows rep and actually sold them an, an idea before we had a manufacturer to make the thing. Uh, so it was all like, you know, that, that's when I realized was that that moment is like, geez, I can sell anything. I can walk into a national corporation and sell them something as just two kids, you know. Um, so I, um, I had a, a, another business that didn't require a lot of my time. And that's actually something that I've, I've done in the past where like I dive deep into a problem figure out how other people can solve it better for me and sort of take a step back. So um, I got, then I get existentially bored. That's what happens to me. So I figure out the easiest way to solve the problem. Then I get bored. And I was in one of those phases. Um, and uh, Carlos Cashman and Josh, who, you know, put up the money for the business. Um, I was, I was, I met Carlos at a cocktail party and he had a Facebook advertising agency and he was complaining about one of his clients and how they didn't understand branding. And they were blaming his performance, but he said it was the branding. And I was like, oh, let me check out the brand. And I was like, yes, this is 100% wrong. And this is, these are the nine ways that I would fix it. And he said something along the lines. He's like, wow, that's terrific. Could you come into my office next week and teach my team like, you know, about the way you look at brands and stuff? And I said, absolutely. Um, so... All that stuff was just innate to me. I didn't really have any training in it at all. Um, so I, uh, I got some books off of Amazon uh, so I could tie the language together to what the stuff I already knew, build a presentation, started working with Carlos on a consulting basis for his old company. Uh, and then we just sort of fast became friends. So uh, Carlos then started considering taking an exit from um, his previous Facebook ad agency we would hang out, uh, drink wine in his wine cellar and just talk about future businesses that we could do. Um, we were thinking about launching our own e-commerce brands. At one point, we actually had a luxury pillow brand that was, uh, and a sunglass brand that was on our list. Um, that's when Josh came into the picture. Uh, he's one of the brightest financial minds I've ever seen in the world and the best fundraiser I've ever been around. And it's not even close. Um, so he had always wanted to do, do a roll-up. Right. And Carlos and I were thinking about launching brands. 
And at the advertising, Facebook advertising agency, we're finding all these people were talking about, yeah, their e-commerce shop is doing well, but their Amazon's crushing it. And so we thought to ourselves, well, these guys aren't overly sophisticated. Maybe there's a place where we could actually combine our idea of wanting to manage and own brands and launch them with actually buying them. So uh, December 2017 was when I opened up my computer and actually typed in like, how do you buy an Amazon business? And at that point, um, we took on Stephanie, uh, who's still the CEO there, um, as, uh, as, as our overarching sort of manager. So what did we have? We had Carlos, who had taken many exits previously before, who was one of the best networkers I've ever seen, right? So we had 50 employees hired before we even had to have a real HR team. It was all basically from Carlos's list of friends, right? We had Josh, who was the incredible fundraiser and sort of mental architect and everything. We had Stephanie, who was the amazing operator and consistent, delivered results, dedicated worker. And you had a crafty, creative, abstract salesman, hustler person. To me, the perfect combination of people to get a business off the ground. And then we just started adding talents very quickly. So we started um, across the street from my house. There was a little Dunkin' Donuts that my father-in-law owned the building. And there was a teeny office the size of a conference room. And that's where the four, you know, four of us started operations. And we were interviewing people from real prestigious places inside the Dunkin' Donuts because often we'd be on calls in the in the conference room, and we had some people come in and be like, "What is this? this is this is absurd? I'm leaving," you know. Um, but before you know it, we had uh, we we moved into another local office a few miles down the road, and we were blowing out walls there within four months. Uh, and then you know things went sort of what I would say out of control, huge. To um, it went from the four of us to by the time I left, there was north of 1,500 employees uh, total. And we had offices all over the world. Um, I myself was overseeing offices in uh, in Bucharest, Salt Lake City team in Houston. Um, obviously, I was running out of the Boston office, and we had a big team in New York. So it really was, you know, I, I some people say drink from the fire hose, you know, flying while you're building the plane. I don't think there's been as extreme of a situation, or there haven't been many, as what we went through. We were, according to, to record, the fastest company in American history to receive a billion-dollar valuation. Um, and to say that that journey was, wasn't was wild and over the top, I mean, it, it, it absolutely was. Uh, and it was a blast. <laughs> it, maybe, it maybe wore us out a little bit and, and took some of you know, our, 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 our life force from it. But uh, what, a, what a journey. And I was so fortunate to be part of it. And uh, I really enjoyed it for what it was. I, I like taking risks. I um, I like kind of, um, you know, taking a role and seeing where it turns out. And to me, it was the perfect playground. I got to do all my creative ventures, build teams, lead teams, do new products, you know, like uh, build a team that helped um, defend against bad actors. It was so much fun. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. So you, you've, you founded... Thrasio, and then it grew to the point that it grew. So today, and there are many, many aggregators. I've actually had about four people from Thrasio on the show. Still okay. with 
Uh, from the, the the office in Germany, the, here in the U.S., and a couple of other places. So I asked them the same question. So I want to hear what your take is. Knowing where we are today with the economic conditions and the whole downturn in the aggregator space, how are you maintaining sustainable profits? How are you maintaining growth? What would be your recommendation? What would be your approach for aggregators? Sure. Yeah. So again, you know, I haven't been with Thrasio since April of last year. So what they're doing um, is what they're doing. So I, I'm not going to speak for them, uh, nor could I, even if I knew. Um, sure. But, you know, for me, the way to do it is, well, you better be smart with the businesses you're buying. <laughs> they better have upside. You better be paying a fair price for them that allows you some wiggle room to make some mistakes here and there. And you better be running things lean and you better have um, real operators, real people understand what it takes to sell and grow brands. And here's the last one. Don't be overly ambitious. Don't try to add, you know, we're going to do uh, international. We're going to go on, you know, um, Mercado Libre. We're going to get into target. We're going to, do whatever, right? Like pick the thing that you're most likely to be good at and start slow and keep things lean and you'll figure out a way. Like, you know, there's, there's the business model is not going away. It might change significantly and there might be some big ebbs and flows, but where there's viable businesses to be had, there's going to be a market to buy them, right? Um, so it's the people who just, who see that and keep things relatively simple. Uh, will 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 be that. I, I think having like, you know, having some off the shelf tech is helpful to to make things more efficient. I think that's where it's going to go. I think some of the aggregators are spending way too much money on tech right now to figure it out. When maybe the solution would have been find someone who's already doing it and just use their stuff, right? You know. Um, but uh, that's where I see the business going. Is is the lean and mean smart ones are going to make it. And the ones who are, uh, how do I say this, like overly ambitious or overly bloated are going to have a real problem going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had quite a few aggregators and their standard answer generally is we are now focused on growth and operational efficiency. Yeah. So. That's what they are saying. But of course, it's one thing to say it, it's another to execute. 100%. Yeah. Once you have also, you know, once you build up your infrastructure, you know, I always say this to people, small businesses. So I say, my, my formula usually for growth for small businesses is when you come up with an idea and then you start to experiment with it, your first goal is to break a million, right? So, that's the first milestone as a small business. If you break a million, that means that you've got a winning idea, you've got an audience, but let's face it, you don't have an infrastructure yet. It's all you as an yeah. entrepreneur doing what you're doing with the people around you who are doing things because they are loyal to you. They are not experts in their area, right? They just joined you because of your vision and they believe in you and now they're helping that now you you've broken a million 
And then you keep growing, but as you go beyond a million, you now have certain situations going on because you don't really have an infrastructure. And then you break 3 million and then go towards four or five. So at some point, if you don't make the right decisions to build an infrastructure to help you scale, what I always tell everybody is be very careful because you cannot roll back to go back from five, six, seven million dollars to go back to two, three million dollars. It's like a, uh, somebody takes a sledgehammer and then hits you over the head. You cannot because you, you, you've gotten used to spending money. You've gotten used to hiring people. You've gotten used to people doing things for you that you cannot afford to keep anymore. And so it's the same thing with aggregators. They have this infrastructure. How do you roll back very quickly? And then how do you keep the people who stay with you motivated? Because now they're thinking, okay, am I going to be next? Right? Yep. So these are the difficult choices for leaders. I mean, not only in aggregated space, in any business, really. When the times are hard, you start laying off people. Then how do you make sure that the, the ones that stay behind are motivated? Yes. So. So uh, your approach to keep it uh, lean and make sure that you're making money and buy wisely in the, to start with is definitely the right way. So, uh, John, tell us a little bit about your beginning. So where did you grow up and what was that like, you know, as a sure. kid in your household? Uh, so I, I grew up in, um, in the countryside of Connecticut, which does exist. Uh, in the in the Berkshire Mountains, my my father um, was a fairly successful um, children's book author. So he authored and illustrated about a hundred books. Um, he then started one of the first educational software businesses in existence. And uh, we we had my brother and myself, and I had an adopted brother and an adopted sister. And private schools, lots of fun, lots of love in the house. Um, and it was really, I would say, a very blessed childhood, at least for the early portions. Um, as I got a little bit older, my parents both started having some health problems. My, my dad's business started to have struggles. We had a lot of other internal strife and, and things became much, much harder, or I'd say uh, much more filled with drama and, and pain. Um, still, my parents were wonderful people and I, I, I love them to death. Uh, as that happens, um, the money really started dissipating. So I, I kind of went from a, a rich kid. I wouldn't say I was spoiled, but you know, I always felt that there was a safety, there was a safe nest for me to go home to, and that really fell apart uh, as I hit college. And a few years later, both my parents were gone, um, and I really had nothing and really no safety net of any kind to to fall back on, um, with the exception of my wife and. Uh, I um, really had a choice at that point, I think, right? Was to, do I take life fully head on or do I sort of like uh, cry about my misfortune and sort of complain about the world treating me wrong and do nothing? Um, so I, I won't lie to you. It took me a while to get my bearings. I was, I was somewhat nihilistic and, and really just about fun, I would say, in most of my 20s. Uh, and it's sort of saying like, what is this all for? Like, you know, my parents had it all and everything fell apart anyway. So why even try? And at some point, you know, I, I woke up and, and changed my mind and, and said that I wanted to leave some kind of legacy for my children. I wanted to see my potential 
unfold. And if I just stagnated, like I would, I would, uh, you know, go to my grave with a ton of regret. Um, so at some point um, in my early thirties, a, a different flame lit off. Uh, and I just really tried to try everything. And most of it didn't work, but everything I learned something from, and it taught me bravery and it taught me how not to be afraid uh, in any business environment. And, you know, I did some, uh, before that, some work people would consider low, but I would consider to be, you know, one of my biggest assets. I, I started out when, after my parents died, I did in-home sales. So I'd go to people's houses and sell them stuff. And man, if you can sell someone in half an hour and they give you a $10,000 check, you know how to sell anything. I'm telling you that right now, right? Um, so, and during this time too, I was just always an avid reader, an avid learner. Um, I've always had a gift of being able to talk to people, of being very comfortable in front of people. Uh, and eventually I started adding in all of those business skills and wisdom and knowledge that come with failure. And it culminated to put me in a place where where I was really, when, when the real golden opportunity of my lifetime came up, uh, I, was, I was ready for it, right? And I was ready to deal with it with, with humor and grace and not take myself too seriously and not have too crazy of an ego and to sort of make other people around me feel more comfortable and lead by, with, uh, with, with warmth uh, and to encourage people to take risks and do all of those things. Um, and it, it wouldn't have come easily if I had an easy path. And I, I was always sort of jealous of others when I was younger and everything sort of fell apart of the ones who just had the easy path laid out for them. I always thought that was the sort of whatever, the nirvana of life. And, and as you get older, I think you kind of figure out it's actually the opposite, mm -hmm. right? It's actually the, the, the carrying a load uphill right? That, that is the, gives you the reward in life. It's overcoming struggle. It's figuring things out. Um, it's hard to see sometimes when you're in it, but to me, I really, uh, yeah, I, I really think that was, uh, the, the biggest catalyst of my life was, was going through that as a child. Yeah. So, I mean, this is an incredible story in the sense that, so here you are. So do you have any brothers, sisters? I do. Yeah. I have an, I have a, an older brother, um, who's eight years older than me. And uh, I have also an adopted brother who's two years older than me. Okay. So you're going through life. Your parents are loving to provide a good home, you know, comfortable living. And also from what I hear, it's a, it's a creative environment, right? So creative environments are a lot more emotional environments because you, it, because I'm an engineer by training, you know, it's all about logical stuff. So, sure. you know, it's a lot uh, drier, so to speak. My parents were doctors, so it's a diff different kind of environment. So you are in this uh, emotional, uh, loving environment, comfortable, and then suddenly it all disappears. And how old were you when th the whole thing disappeared? I'd, I'd say things started to break from the seams around when I was 15 and I was in my... Uh... I uh, mid to late twenties when everything was gone. So like so, uh, when it started to unfold, are you, were you seeing things collapsing or yes. you were? Yes. And, and did you, how, how did that feel? I mean, did you want to do something about it or 
were you told no don't worry we'll do it and except you sitting here still seeing things fall apart um i think my parents did a nice job trying to shelter and absorb a lot of the pain they were going through um and i, I admire them for that um i think that my defense mechanism which still is something i use this day was uh using humor and levity to kind of mask any pain or diff or sadness that i was actually experiencing deeply um so i i i did that as my defense mechanism i didn't feel i was uh, equipped at that age to really do anything to fix anything there was nothing i it was it felt hopeless to do that so all i could do was was try to comfort right and and try to be pleasant and helpful where i could be and and that was my that was my path um you know some of my other siblings took different paths and little, were a little bit more destructive during those times but i i wanted to be at least a small marker of stability mm -hmm. so would you say that having seen and having lived through that experience of things going deteriorating slowly in the business environment are you able to pick up things going in the wrong direction and then things starting to deteriorate are, are you more able to pick those up i i think perhaps but you know one of my strengths is and I'm, I'm i'm an eternal optimist right like so i see a problem that oh, the problem can always be fixed right mm -hmm. i'm one of those people um i so i might hang on a little bit longer than others and a lot of times it's worked out well for me um mm -hmm. but i see what i'm trying to say is i see things that are, are troublesome, um, but I, I still will try to fix them maybe a little bit longer uh, for the most part, unless I see something that I'm just like, this is just not working. We've yeah. had some programs that after four months, like I had no issue giving the thumbs up to cut because I was like, this is just, nothing's going according to plan, yeah. you know? Well, I mean, uh, look, you can't be an entrepreneur without being an optimist, right? So yeah, you, you always- I, I, I forget it was like a delusional optimism is the term that I use. So you have to kind of be a little bit, if you wrote down when you're starting a business, all the things that could go wrong, like you'd never, you'd never launch a business, right? You have to sort of, you have to, you know, be a little delusional about that stuff in my mind. So what was the uh, catalyst? So you mentioned that it took a while for you to see the light at the end of the tunnel and shake it off. So how, how long did that take? Um, I mean, depending on what your metrics are, it took, it took years, right? You know, I, I was always, I was always an avid learner, but I would, I would learn just for the sake of learning without considering any financial ramifications of my choice. All right. So like, uh, I would just follow interests and, and then see where that, see where that took me. Um, and, uh, so it, it took me a while and then I, I felt like I don't, I can't go back to the exact day but something switched in my head one day. I just woke up and said, nope, I want to be successful. I want to see what, what I'm capable of. I know I'm not living up to my potential, right? And I'm going, I'm going to do it. Uh, and, and so I, I don't know when that day was, but I remember that day happening. Yeah, you were married at the time. You had kids? Yes. So they must have contributed to a certain extent. I mean, it must have built up over time for you to want to do things and change things, right? I, I, I think certainly that that was a, a factor. Um, but I think that existential worry of who I was becoming was already existing before the kids came along. 
right? I was already starting to see that like this sort of, uh, how do I say this? Like light search of happiness was not going to be enough to anchor my life for the rest of my life. And that I needed more. And I didn't know how to phrase it that way. And I, I hadn't really read the proper literature to, to, to understand that, you know, those goals of, you know, Oppenheimer chasing happiness or it leads you to, to bad places. Right. Um, but I started to feel it. You know, I started to feel it deep inside of me that I was disappointing myself and I needed to do something about it. Yeah. Well, you know what it was, uh, John, it's the inner strength because I, I always say, you know, when you, when somebody says, I want to be an entrepreneur as a young, young person, I say, you know, be very careful with that decision because you're going to be tested. And the only thing you can count on is, I mean, you need to have a support system around you, your family, your friends or whatever, who will encourage you. They'll share your vision and they'll support you because if not, they'll drain your energy. Uh, but yep. it doesn't matter how much support you have around you. Ultimately, it's going to fall back on your inner strength. And that inner strength is what's going to be needed to get you pull yourself out of a bad situation, a bad mindset. We are our own worst critics. 100%. So it doesn't matter. Doesn't yeah. matter. You know, whoever says, "Oh, you know, you, you you're great. You you did this. You did that. You did the other." And then they say something, and then you just focus on that, and then suddenly you make yourself to be a failure. Uh, and this that's how we are. So. Yep. inner strength then you obviously had that inner strength and enough was enough and yeah at some point i think yeah still filled yeah. with my own flaws and foibles like all of us um but uh it definitely was um a a, a powerful thing to recognize in my life for sure yeah it's a it's a hell of a story and it's a it's a hell of a an accomplishment uh, i don't mean financial the business but it's so you've seen it yourself. It's so easy to be stuck in that black place, but yes. to pull yourself out of it and then do everything you did. It's uh, it's a great inspiration for a lot of people. That's great. This was uh, great, uh, John. So share with us how can people reach you? What's the best way to? Connect? Oh, sure. Yeah, I don't really use a social media ton. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn if you want. Um, you can use my email address, which is just my generic one, John Hefter Marketing at gmail.com. I check that from time to time. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the best way to reach me. And, I'm, and by the way, if you do reach out to me, I, I always respond. So, you know, if anyone has any questions, I'll get back well, to you at I some can, point. I, I can testify to that. So uh, you, you are very gracious. Thank you, John. Thank you for, for being here. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. And take care, everyone. To the end of another episode, and I'll see you on the next one. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends.